The Middle East and North Africa are susceptible to some of the most severe consequences of climate change, including extreme weather patterns, heat waves, extensive drought, and rising sea levels. Climate change could make previously habitable sections of North Africa and the Middle East uninhabitable. Meanwhile, most of the conversation and coverage of climate crisis and other factors which have exacerbated living conditions for tens of millions of people is often depicted as a, quote, global security issue for the West. So we have decided to start a new series looking at the intersections of climate change, war, politics, oil-driven economies, and how the overlays of these factors impact the region's ecosystem, human health, agriculture, fisheries, and other aspects of people's livelihood. We will also bring you the voices of environmental justice activists, journalists, and authors who are working to save their communities. On this edition of Status, we speak with Palestinian environmental researcher and activist Mona Dejani about the impacts of climate change in the Middle East and North Africa region and underlying reasons for the water crisis in Palestine. We've seen, like from the recent events as well, that have been uh, happening and devastating a lot of parts and areas of the world, including the north as well. And yeah, climate change is happening. It is a reality on the ground. And of course, what you said also about the expected outcomes, um, the expected impacts of climate change are severe everywhere in the world. But also, of course, the Middle East will have its share of these impacts. And it will be, of course, devastating. And we've seen a couple of these events happening. As you, as you have also mentioned, uh, it's always been kind of uh, framed as a security issue, as this global security issue. And to an extent, that has been kind of the dominant climate change discourse throughout the world. When we really look at the, the number of conferences that have been conducted and to kind of agree on what should be done to combat climate change. And we see like a lot of mobilization somehow from a state level and an intergovernmental level. And yeah, to an extent, you would think that the way that it should be combated is through states and nation states negotiating a right response through adaptation and mitigation and other means. And however, yeah, this framework is hugely lacking as it's not really addressing underlying impacts and underlying reasons for what we have today and all the impacts of climate change we're seeing on the ground. Um, to an extent, this global framing is also very limiting. It's very much weakening our understanding of climate change. Climate change is not only understanding and modeling changes and seeing how are they going to be in the future and what is actually happening to our weather, to the ecosystems we live in. But actually, we also need to look at politics. We need to look at the political situation, the socioeconomic conditions of the areas we study. We also need to think of how do people actually understand climate change. Definitely, when we speak about the Middle East, we see it also in breaking news. It's the buzzwords we see around climate change in the Middle East and North Africa and how it's instigating conflict, whether it is a direct cause of certain wars, certain conflicts. And this is also, we see it in, let's say, official statements uh, mm -hmm. by the UN, by different international agencies that work on the ground, or whether we see it by uh, non-governmental organizations that are producing a certain uh, knowledge about how we actually perceive climate change. What do we think climate change actually impacts? Is it actually instigating war and conflict within states? Is it actually causing people to migrate? Is it actually producing the climate migrants? We also are seeing in the news construction of the idea of a climate migrant. It's also relevant to Middle East and North Africa because we actually deal with a few events and political uprisings and conflicts. And we do talk about climate migrants in the case of the Middle East and North Africa. We really need to be critical mm. and we need to make sure that this knowledge that we construct takes into account as well that um, there are a lot of contextualized and very case-specific reasons for wars and for conflict and for migration of people. And it's a very complex issue and it shouldn't be kind of reduced to stating that the root cause is climate change. And this is a paradigm that we need to shift slowly, but definitely it's very important to talk about politics of climate change in a context of 
of occupation, in a context of military intervention, and a complex of settler colonialism. There's so much work that needs to be done on that front to kind of reconfigure our understanding of climate change and its impacts in the Middle East and North Mm. Africa. And as you said, the impacts of climate change on the ecosystems in the Middle East and North Africa is not divorced from politics, settler colonialism. And water crisis in Palestine is a good example of that. A couple of years ago, I spoke with you about Jordan River, a vital waterway that flows across national boundaries. It starts from the slopes of Mount Hermon on the borders between Syria and Lebanon. It flows south through northern Israel, through the Sea of Galilee, then meanders down a 200-kilometer valley and ends in the Dead Sea. And this river is called one of the most endangered and polluted rivers in the world. And Dead Sea is shrinking by one meter a year. So just remind us about the state of Jordan River and the Dead Sea and what factors have contributed to their degradation. So I think one point uh, to start with, I would actually just try to link it to how we also produce or reconceptualize the idea that climate change is the culprit. It's the reason for all of the impacts that we're witnessing today for the lack of access of water, for drought and other things. And I think if we actually look at climate change in a context of occupation, this is what we've done in a study we've conducted. I was part of a team at the London School of Economics Middle East Center, and we were partnering with Birzeit University, and we kind of looked at the occupation and post-occupation context to understand what actually causes the vulnerability of communities, agricultural communities in the Jordan River Basin. And we looked at cases in South Lebanon, in the occupied Golan Heights, and in the West Bank. We did a survey and we interviewed many farmers and practitioners and kind of really wanted to know, is it climate change that people are facing and trying to adapt to? Is it making them more vulnerable as communities? And uh, interestingly, I think, let's say, uh, what I can now just summarize quickly, uh, one of the findings of that study was that farmers in all of these areas actually think of occupation practices of resource exclusion and resource control and hegemony of Israel as more damaging to their agricultural practices and to their communities' resilience than climate change. A lot of farmers we have interviewed have actually talked to us about how a lot of tacit knowledge that they have passed on to generations is helping them deal to a certain extent, of course, with the climatic changes that we are witnessing in our region. But a lot have said that... It's the policies that we see that Israel, with its occupation and its laws and regulations of resource extraction, that actually makes the lives of these farming communities more at risk and weaker in a way. So definitely, yeah, linking it to the Jordan River Basin and to the actual flow of water we see in the tributaries of that river, a lot has happened since the beginning of the 20th century, let's Mm -hmm. say. But with the creation of the State of Israel and Palestine's Nakba, We have witnessed as well, of course, the rise of other nation states in the basin, what we call riparians, of course. We have Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Israel, and to a certain extent also the Palestinian Authority. And we have here a situation where how we construct our knowledge about that shared basin is all from nation state level. So basically, we will talk about how each state has certain equitable allocations, so it has certain rights of allocation of water from the River Jordan, from the basin, which includes water that we see in rivers, water that's over ground. And we also look at groundwater as well. Mm. Who has the right to use that water and how much and how should it be equitably shared between these countries? But definitely, I think with the context, with what we are witnessing, with Israel as an occupying force and Israel as, as a hegemon, what we refer to in the literature as a water hegemon in this basin is that Most of the water is being used and abstracted, of course, not equitably by Israel. So it controls the tributaries of the Jordan River. And to a certain extent today, its action, along with over-abstraction and overuse of other tributaries of the Jordan River Basin, like the Yarmouk River by Syria, and to a certain extent Jordan's use has also led to a kind of a deterioration of the quality and the quantity of the water that flows within that basin. 
to a certain extent, we can also claim that it is a man-made crisis. Mm -hmm. It is not because of climate change specifically. Of course, climatic changes do exist, and there is no denial that we have seen through, of course, scientific modeling and a lot of different scientific tools that we've used to identify that climate change has an impact on the level of water available in the region, and it has an impact on rainfall and all of that. And we have to also analyze and even like really deeply analyze the underlying unjust conditions that this water is being used. So Mona, let's take a step back. First off, can you tell us about how this water is shared amongst different parties? We have Jordan, we have Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, Syria. So how is this water shared? If we take a step back, and I think here history teaches us a lot of lessons in terms of understanding the situation we are in today when it comes to the Jordan River Basin and its deterioration, we can take a few steps back and look at the early 30s, 40s, when, uh, again, the idea of a nation-state in this part of the world was being constructed and developed. And eventually, these riparian countries that have come to share this river and the basin I think a lot of focus was from the British colonial rule and later on American influence and American mediation is to kind of develop the agricultural, develop some sort of industrial agriculture in the area, really reach out for what we call like narratives of modernization and development. So the idea was that the more we develop this river basin, the more we develop the water resources, whether it's rivers, whether it's the groundwater and we kind of think of a more, in a way, a more modern agricultural practices of intensive agriculture, the more we will see development. And this consequently will also bring the countries that share this water resource together for like a more shared water resource. And this has been the main construction of the basin as a shared water resource. And that, of course, came with a lot of curses, in addition to kind of, yes, bringing some sort of development. But of course, it was very unequitably shared. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has caused what we see today. The reason I'm asking is because we often hear that Israel, Syria and Jordan have diverted 98% of the Jordan River's water. But there is very little discussion about the details of exactly who's doing what, and how this water is being used or abused or misused by various parties, specifically Israel. Yeah, this is what we have also been trying to study and kind of also offer a more comprehensive analysis of who is using what, but also under which conditions, under what political circumstances, and also during which important events and decades of confrontation, war, and occupation. I'll refer also, again, maybe also on the website, we can refer to a few studies that we've carried out. It's a team of of researchers at the University of East Anglia, working with a lot of local research institutes and researchers who looked at what we call a hydropolitical baseline. Uh, We looked at the upper Jordan River, but we also looked at the Yagmuk River in the last bits of publication. And here we kind of looked at what has been the changes over 100 years of the water availability, the water use, what political events have occurred, and kind of link all of these together, see who is using what under which conditions to build a more comprehensive analysis. Because definitely, I think for me, as a researcher on water, I'm interested more in justice lens and in the justice framework of how water is used, not necessarily with allocations, not so much how much Israel has been using Syria or Jordan for that matter, but to an extent to understand under what conditions it is using this water and what type of infrastructure that is on the ground that is kind of also facilitating the flow of water to a certain entity and really depriving others from that source of water. And such a lens where we kind of have a more multidisciplinary approach to it, where we don't look at only allocations and only at the technicalities of things, but kind of look also at the politics of it. Mm -hmm. We can say that, yes, 98% might have been used over the years by these three uh, riparians, but I think the details of that use and how coercion has been used, how claiming sovereignty over territory and even illegal occupation of certain territory, like the case of the Occupied Golan Heights and the West Bank, will actually show us much more about 
under what conditions did this extraction of water happen. If we kind of visually imagine what happened with the upper Jordan, today Israel controls all of the tributaries of the Jordan River. Mm. It controls it in occupied territories in the Golan Heights. And this gave Israel more of territorial sovereignty over the tributaries of the Jordan River. But in a sense as well, it has a lot of what Professor Mark Zaytun refers to as a remote control. It also controls how much water Lebanon is allowed to withdraw from other sources. And this type of physical and remote control is what allowed the river and the waters of that river to be controlled mostly by Israel with the development of a lot of very centralized, very complex systems and infrastructure, like a dam that stops the water from flowing to the lower Jordan River, which captures all the water in Lake Tiberias, Mm. um, and then pumps 300 million cubic meters, which is a lot of water, out of that uh, lake and through a complex set of infrastructure, pipelines, pumps, reservoirs, it pumps it all the way to the Nakab, to the Negev. If we kind of really look into, again, the details of how this control is achieved, what is happening on the ground, we can come to an understanding of how water is being moved and transferred through the basin. And to an extent, yes, as well, Syria and Jordan have also extensively used the resource, but to a large extent it was Syria who also has used the Yarmouk River because, again, it was deprived of using the tributaries of the Upper Jordan, the Banyas, and for Lebanon, the Hasboni. If we want to look at what's happening today, we have to look at the history of it all. Mm. Another important point is to look at how, yes, nation states have come to assert their sovereignty through the water resource, but in the case, let's say, of Palestine, where we have the West Bank and Gaza specifically, a very geographically contained area, where even riparian rights are not acknowledged by Israel. So Palestine's right for the Jordan River today is kind of dismissed or disregarded in a way under all of the agreements that the Palestinian Authority has signed with Israel. So it does not really address our rights as riparians to the Mm -hmm. Jordan River. And this also alienates us as Palestinians from acknowledging and stating that we have a right to the Jordan River, we have the right to the Dead Sea. And this, of course, has a detrimental effect on how we as Palestinians view and construct our, what we call, again, our understanding of our relationship with the Mm -hmm. natural resource. And really limits it to talking about allocations, again, whether it's between Syria and Jordan, whether it's between Israel and Jordan, or whether it's between Israel today and the Palestinian Authority. Water has been reduced significantly to commodity that's being shared, and where Israel is really keen on selling that commodity through different means, like desalination, and having a control over the supply, maintaining a demand Hmm. uh, which comes from the West Bank and Gaza to a certain extent. I want to go back later and talk about this specific issue, the water allocation and water rights for the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. But first, I wanted to ask you, as you said, Yarmouk River is the largest tributary of the Jordan River, and it rises from Syria. How has the war in Syria impacted the river? Definitely, it's soon to come to conclusions regarding what has changed in regards to the use of the waters. Um, definitely what has been happening in the last decades in the Yarmouk Basin on the Syrian side is that there has been extensive withdrawal of water, either through pumping and drilling of wells to get groundwater, or whether it has been direct use of the river, or whether it is a construction of earthen dams to capture the flood water in the wadis. And basically what we've seen, which of course happens in any context, in any geographical area that is witnessing a lot of political instability and violence, in the case of the south of Syria, there has been a lot of, of course, as we know, tragic displacement of whole communities, villages, towns and cities. And this, of course, has caused more flow of the river because there's less to mm. the water, there is not even enough fuel for electricity uh, for people to survive, let alone pumping water from the ground for irrigation of crops. So basically, yes, it is a very short-lived increase of water availability, but I think definitely if we look at it at the, in the long term, we cannot really say that there is more water because of multiple reasons, but of course, yes, because of the displacement of refugees in the area of the basin, we can maybe see a bit of increase in the flows, but not sustainable. It's not something, of course, that we can build policies 
on. And this is why yeah, we need to always be aware and be considerate the context under which these phenomena and these events happen. So what has happened to all the agricultural lands close to the Yarmouk River? Really, thinking of it in a way where there was some sort of definitely a consistency in the way that agriculture has been practiced in these communities around the border, where you had decades of governmental control over the natural resources, over the agricultural practices of farmers, and then you have an abrupt change where things are not happening like they were used to. So definitely there will be a substantial difference. But again, it's short-lived. If we look at the timeline of 100 years, maybe this will be just a very minimal change when we look at it from a 100 years perspective. But if we look at what's happening today, there is extensive, of course, change in the maintenance and the upkeeping of agricultural lands and fields around the border because of what's happening in Syria today, because of the crisis that Syria is witnessing. Yes, change it is definitely happening, but to what extent can we say this is going to be the situation for the next even one or two years? We cannot really predict what's going to happen. Yeah. And what about Jordan? How has the degradation of Jordan River's water impacted Jordan, both in terms of tourism and agriculture? As it's known as well that uh, Jordan is one of the most scarce countries in the world when it comes to water resources. And it also comes with decades of institutional mismanagement. It comes with a lot of issues that are specific to Jordan, but also, again, to the relationship of sharing a resource with a few countries. One of them is an occupying force mm-hmm. where it has, let's say, upper hand or upper control of these natural resources. And not only the Jordan shares its water with Israel and Syria. For that matter, it also shares it with Saudi Arabia and the South. I'm not the best to speak about the situation in Jordan, but definitely when it comes to the Jordan River Basin, we have also witnessed a lot of changes to the Jordan Valley. If we look at the Jordan Valley and its development as an intensive agriculture region, where it has, you know, the best climate for the growing of crops throughout the year, Mm -hmm. and this has developed and the ideas of intensive agriculture in these areas since the 1950s until today. But again, it's kind of compounded and have a mix of the lack of access to the resource itself, only mm-hmm. through agreements with Israel, where Jordan can actually today tap into and access its uh, resources, whether it's the Yarmouk River and whether it's the Jordan River. Mm-hmm. So it's only through agreements where Jordan had some sort of an allocation of water. I'm speaking with Mona Dijani, Palestinian environmental researcher and activist about the issue of water rights in the occupied West Bank and Gaza. And later we'll speak about the World Bank-sponsored Red Sea Dead Sea deal. We'll be back after a short break. talk about this $900 million Red Dead Sea plan, which is sponsored by the World Bank, and it was brokered back in July by the United States. It's a water deal between Israel, Palestinian Authority, and Jordan. It has been hailed as a solution that is going to help the Dead Sea water level problem and also the water shortages in Palestine and Jordan. This has been the dominant narrative. Tell us about this project and how it's going to impact Jordan and the West Bank and Gaza. Let's spend some time on really understanding what this whole project, which was agreed upon back in 2013, and I spoke to you about this in detail back then, but it seems they reached a final agreement, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so basically... um also, again, when you look at history, there's so much I can tell you about even these type of projects. Again, we have this narrative of modernization, development, the idea that we as nations, if we want to be 
progressive and modern, we have to harness all of our natural resources, use technology and scientific knowledge that is now predominantly produced in the West to achieve that level of welfare and achieve that level of modernity and modernization. And to that extent, I think the Red Dead has a very long history, and there are now some research papers that have been published about this that talk about even the historical development of the idea of a Red Dead and even the roots of it in Zionist ideology and thought and the idea that technology, again, will save the day and with the right scientific knowledge and the technicians, enlightened engineers of the West, the East could be developed and could be a haven of technology and development and prosperity. So I think, yeah, we have to look at these kind of projects with a very critical eye because technology cannot save the day when the conditions under which technology is being deployed are conditions of injustice, unequal access to resources, and a lot of exclusionary policies of control and extraction of resources. So under this kind of narrative that we're trying to work on as critical researchers, we aim to look and scrutinize actually uh, all of these agreements, all of these mega infrastructural projects that have a lot of history, whether it's the World Bank, which has been leading all over the world all of these mega projects of dam construction with its detrimental effect on whole communities that have been uprooted from their native lands in order to build projects that were deemed also eventually after decades of their construction, deemed to be environmentally devastating on a community level. They were also devastating to the cohesion of communities. And also from from a technical point of view, they're also very expensive, <laughs> very damn expensive. And this is one of them. If we talk about 900 million, a lot of different numbers, it comes to billions. Mm. with the idea of kind of reviving and producing more water. There are different components to this deal. Desalination plants, piping water from the Red Sea to the Dead Sea. So there are different components to this deal. Can you break it down for us? Yeah, basically this deal, well, the deal is only a small part of the plan. (laughs) Because the plan is always, of course, much more larger scale, uh, but of course it has to be done with steps and stages, and this is what's happening today. It's taking the idea of a Red Dead plan, like taking bits and pieces of it and trying to implement it on the ground through agreement. And basically here, I think the important thing is what we talked before, is that the Dead Sea is dying. This is a fact. We can look at science, we can look at uh, modeling, and we can look at how the level of the Dead Sea is lowering, how the Dead Sea is shrinking, how it's being polluted by different extractive industries in Israel and in Jordan. And the idea that it is very polluted, river stream and the basin that's very highly polluted. So basically, how do we save that Dead Sea? And the contention here by nation states is we save the Dead Sea by using technology in our advantage to build desalination plants and harness more, even more natural resources. Mm. In this case, it's the Red Sea. And there were other ideas of bringing the Mediterranean Sea in as well. So we desalinate the salty water of the sea. And this way, we can have, first, increased availability of water in terms of quantities. But then we can also have the output of such an operation of the desalination facilities would be increasing the level of the Dead Sea through using all of the surplus of the desalination process. Of course, these details were discussed and scrutinized in many studies where they were criticized because even on an ecosystem level, there's a lot of alarming uh, findings regarding how can we actually revive the Dead Sea by changing its chemical composition? How can we revive the Dead Sea by changing its very distinct conditions? But anyway, the plan is part of a plan that uses this technical rationale of increasing availability of water, mm-hmm. therefore meeting the increasing demands of all the growing population in Jordan, of course, now with the influx of the refugees from Syria, but also refugees from Iraq and before that, the Palestinian refugees. So the idea that there is an increasing demand because of this increased population influx, but also that Israel is a leading country in technology of desalination. It's one of the number one countries around the world using and producing this technology. And the idea is that, yes, let's use this technology, which is politics-free. And what we have witnessed is that the knowledge we construct is that politics is what ruins everything. So let's not talk about politics. Let's talk about water swap. The better arrangement is that, oh, let's talk about the peace-building waterfall, yes. where we actually uh, promote peace by producing a commodity 
between parentheses, a commodity that, that has caused so much war and conflict over the years. Why don't we actually reframe it as a resource that's highly needed? Some country has it, which in this case is Israel, and other countries need it, which in this case is the Palestinian Authority, whether it's the West Bank and Gaza, whether it's Jordan for that matter. But so even in this is deal, Israel is a winner also because... The pipeline is carrying brine from the desalination plant on the Red Sea to the Dead Sea. And then Israel is going to sell Jordan fresh water. And then instead, Palestinians are going to be sold desalinated water, if they are sold desalinated water, at a high cost. Yes, because of all of these agreements and arrangements, there are arrangements. In a way, they're much more than agreements that have more of an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, an acknowledgement of injustice, mm-hmm. and moving a step forward towards something that's not going to happen, but towards acknowledging of Israel's main responsibility for the Nakba, for the dispossession of land, of resources, of Palestinians. So instead of that, we talk about arrangements, we talk about water swaps. And yes, definitely it will involve, you know, to a bit where Jordan and Israel are swapping <laughs> water around. If we look from south to north, so desalination happens in the south, in Aqaba, but then the swap happens in the north, where water is being pumped from Lake Tiberias to Jordan. In a way, yes, the Palestinians at the end of the day are being sold water. So they're kind of the whatever trickle downs from that arrangement between Jordan and Israel actually ends up by Palestinians paying overpriced water that they have no access to and no control of. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, Israel will still be in control of the natural resource and of the also produce a new, what we call new water, which is the desalinated water. Mm -hmm. In this case, it is still in control of the physical, natural water, natural resource, but it's also uh, in control of that new virtual, not really virtual, but the new source of water. And again, at the end of the day, these arrangements, which are also framed as peace-building efforts, as, you know, another step towards a peaceful resolution of the Palestine issue, they're, at the end of the day, a trade agreement. And it is very much all about selling and buying, stripping it all from its very much political character that there is an injustice when it comes to natural resources, use and exploitation by Israel. There is a grave injustice when it comes to water availability and water distribution between Palestinians, even inside Israel, Palestinians in the West Bank, and of course, the grave situation in Gaza that is very much man-made. It's not due to climate change, but Mm. rather due to occupation policies. So can you spend some time talking about the history of how has historically Israel restricted Palestinians' access to drinking water and the infrastructure needed to address the water crisis in the occupied West Bank and Gaza and really the water needs of the Palestinians? Basically, it's after decades of territorial control and acquisition through mainly military occupation, but kind of that developed into also Israel's power as a hegemon as a state that really forces coercion over natural resources, so where Lebanon cannot really use its natural resources in the south, and where Syria as well is deprived from using its rightful share in the upper Jordan River. It is a history of decades of this type of coercion and control, where Israel has established itself as the hegemon of the basin. But it always reflected, of course, negatively on Palestinians who don't have a nation-state claim their rights. So since the 50s and even after the occupation in 1967, Israel has already been tapping into the groundwater, which is the only water resource today available for Palestinians inside the West Bank. So it has tapped into the groundwater earlier than 1967 even. And actually, since 1967, a series of military orders have also heavily constrained and even really criminalized any type of control of the resource by village councils, by municipalities that were actively using customary laws and a lot of different formulations of water use, communal water use in these communities and stripped away any agency of users, of Palestinians, whether they were farmers, whether they were village council heads, all of that. There was a stripping of agency by Israel of people's access and control of the resource. Since 1967, military orders ruled the game, and Israel actually started tapping much more into the groundwater, of course, and 
pumping all the water, not only to the settlements that were inside the West Bank and Gaza, but also to other Israeli communities. And yes, yeah, since then, I think the control very much was established, which was very much cursed when the Oslo Accords were signed, where Palestinians were not acknowledged any right, but they were acknowledged some sort of allocation. And since we know that Oslo Accords were an interim agreement that was not supposed to last 20 years, this has really weakened the Palestinians' claim of water rights in the Jordan River Basin, uh, water rights for its groundwater access and control, and have really left the Palestinian Authority and left Palestinians under the control of Israel when it comes to water. And I think distinctly very importantly to raise an issue how more than 60% of the West Bank, which lies in an area called Area C, is under the full control of Israel. So not even one water infrastructure facility or even a chicken coop can be actually constructed without permits, a series of permits that never really have an end. That's Israel and what is called civil administration, which is the body that oversees and manages the Palestinian territories. They have to approve any infrastructure that happens in more than 60% of the West Bank. So we find that these areas have become, and they have actually been ethnically cleansed to a certain extent Mm. because communities can no longer drink themselves. There is not enough to drink. How can they actually sustain any livelihood from livestock? How can they actually sustain any livelihood from, from farming and agriculture? So communities begin moving, begin being internally displaced inside the West Bank to areas where water is more available. But all of this water, again, is being somehow provided between quotes by Israel, because Israel really controls over 85% of the shared water resources in the West Bank. So this creates a situation where people have been stripped of their agency, where Palestinians and even the Palestinian Authority has really no control. How does Israel control water treatment plants in Palestine, in the West Bank? It also requires a bit of background. Definitely it is wastewater that is treated to become usable in agriculture has also been developed as an additional source of water. So again, where technology kind of really comes to save the day again. Mm. Um, And the idea is that wastewater that's being produced from populations in the West Bank and also in Gaza can be actually used in a way to produce increased water that can be used in agriculture eventually. To what extent does Israel control it? Of course, it does control it, because as I said before, if we look at these treatment plants, they need to be happening close to communities, but not to be in the middle of, of a village or a yes. city. They require to be a certain distance away because of a lot of environmental concerns, mm-hmm. a lot of, of course, hygienic concerns and all of these things. That's the first thing. They also need to be in a geographically appropriate location in terms of their design, in terms of how the water should actually reach from the network. So if you imagine if they need to be in Area C, for instance, a treatment plant that is to be built in Area C requires first the approval of what is termed as a joint water committee, that is number of Israeli and Palestinian water experts that come to decide all of the development projects that have to do with water. And this joint water committee is still superseded by another body that has what we call a veto power over what infrastructure project actually makes it or get approved. And this is, again, it's the civil administration. So it is the body that the occupation actually uses to manage and control the occupied Palestinian territories. So we have a double permit. And as I said, only like in Area C, only 1.5% of all applications that the Palestinians have made to build any infrastructure in Area C, only 1.5% was approved between the years 2010 and 14. So you can see the extent of the impossibility of building anything without the agreement of Israel. And basically, to build a treatment plant, one of the conditions that Israel has put forward to the Palestinian Authority was that this treatment plant should also be connected to illegal Jewish settlements oh. that are in the West Bank. And this has really, again, it's a method of coercion, whether, okay, you allow a treatment plant that will also have a positive impact on the ecosystem, on the health of the ecosystem, because we have a lot of pollution in our wadis because of untreated sewage actually running through the wadis and entering Israel at some point as well. But it increases water availability and actually gives a bit of a a relief, but it's not enough, of course, a relief of the dire water situation that's being witnessed in the occupied territories. 
And so basically, this is a method of coercion. And the PA on multiple times had to actually concede with these coercion and accept some settlements being connected to treatment plans. So treatment plans have also been seen as a technological fix to increase water availability. And we see that a lot of even international agencies and donors are actually pushing forward for these type of treatment plans as a solution and as a method of increasing water availability. And here we need to be more critical as well because it's a technical solution. Yes, of course, it's a very highly needed in any society, but at the same time, it's not enough. It doesn't really acknowledge water rights of Palestinians that have been for decades deprived. You had a very interesting article in the International Middle East Media Center in which you talk about the politics of water. You write about this company, Mekorot, which uh, in 1982, the Israeli military transferred its control of the West Bank's water resources to this company, which was founded in 1937. Definitely, it's an old institution, it's a Zionist institution that was founded in Palestine in the 1930s. Basically, it is an arm of the state, it's a quasi-governmental company that is the arm of the state in the execution of and regulation of water projects and infrastructure. It's one of the organizations that actually has the upper hand on controlling water. And it works, of course, it's closely linked to the Water Authority in Israel. Um, And basically, it is a company that regulates all the infrastructure and regulates also water distribution. Since 1967 and onwards in the 80s, it was also the regulator of water distribution to the occupied Palestinian territories. So it has its history as a Zionist organization and enterprise, and actually that has today developed into a very big company that has conglomerates and has a lot of subsidiary companies all over the world. It's used as an entity or as an institution that also exports Israeli water technology entrepreneurship to the developing world. A lot of countries in Africa, a lot of countries in Latin America, and a lot of governments are using this expertise of Mekorod to execute similar water Mm. projects and policies in their countries. And in itself, this is very alarming, but it shows you the extent of also the power of these companies today in the world, not only in Palestine. The idea of the companies that aim to privatize water as a resource and all the upheaval that this has spurred throughout the world, whether in Latin America, whether in Africa or in Mm. a few countries in Asia, where this has been really mobilizing communities around first opposing privatization of water because it is a human right and Companies have to do less and less in an issue that is a human right. You write that the Merokot manages 100 mega projects throughout Israel, including 40 desalination facilities that provide 600 million cubic meters of water per year. And as you said, it has turned into a global business. You write that Israel outsources this technical expertise to developing world and its collaboration with water companies and governments of Argentina, Cyprus, Uganda, Azerbaijan, and Portugal generates billions of dollars. Israel does not have shortage of water. They have excess water that they are selling. Yeah, I think this is also like kind of an extraction and hegemony over it. Because if we look at the narrative from the early years of the establishment of Israel, and the occupation and the Nakba of the Palestinians is that we see that Israel has always put uh, water as its only litmus paper for it becoming a viable state. And today, throughout all of this water control uh, that it has acquired through military occupation in some cases, and its uh, soft power and its control over the resource remotely by not allowing other countries to use the resource, it has yeah, become a water-rich country. So this kind of narrative does not really hold anymore when Israel says water is a security issue for it, because it has really extensively invested in this desalination technology, in the treatment of wastewater, that today it's also leading the world. More than 60% of its water is reused for other purposes, mainly agriculture. So we can imagine to what extent it has gathered additional water resources that were not natural. But it has, at the same time, maintained its control over the waters that are natural, that Palestine and other countries have the rightful share in them. It's very ironic because Israel is lumped in with other countries in the region as 
suffering from water scarcity, which is not true. They have excess water. I wanted to end our conversation by talking about Gaza. Gaza definitely is facing a worsening water crisis, but it's missing from the conversation and it's been treated as a separate entity from the West Bank, as an entity that's not under occupation. So can you tell us a little bit about how Israel has exercised its coercive control over the water of the Gaza Strip? One thing that links first to what we have been discussing earlier about climate change and how we actually construct climate change as a security to, and it never looks at the politics on the ground, it never looks at the context-specific analysis. And I think this is one of the things where we say, oh, Israel is suffering water shortage. Definitely, mm-hmm. as I said before, climate change will have a role to play in decreasing water availability and having fluctuation in rainfall and other phenomena, but it can never really cover overshadow what's happening on the ground, which is the inequality of access and control of the water resources in Palestine by Israel. In a sense, climate change can be used as a cover, you know. They always all about climate change. That's why Palestinians don't have 200 communities in the West Bank don't have access to water source. But of course, the underlying reasons are much more complex than that and are very clear. The, The Israeli occupation's policies of exclusion of the Palestinians from their natural resources. So that's one. When it comes to Gaza, yes, definitely, I think you're right. Say that Israel has also been framed as a separate entity that requires a separate intervention, like the development of a desalination plant that would actually bring increased water into the strip. And I think this is also, again, where technology is used to overcover and overshadow a man-made humanitarian crisis where Gaza, almost all of its water is unfit for human consumption. But definitely, it does not really ring alarming bells that the illegal siege and blockade on Gaza has to end in order for it to first to solve the water issue there, because it is not case-specific to Gaza that its water condition is that grave. It's because it has been made that grave through decades of first blockade and also intentional exclusion. So basically, we can imagine a future where water to Gaza comes from the West Bank, which is a natural to think about because it is a natural continuation of that geographical area, including Israel. So the idea that we always need to look at Gaza as a standalone island, I think it's very problematic and it it is part of the problem. So as water practitioners, we cannot think that desalination will save the day in Gaza and will actually solve anything first because Gaza does not have reliable electricity. We've seen like as little as two to three hours of electricity every day today under various sanctions, then to talk about a very highly energy intensive, a very expensive, still a very expensive source of water for a community that has really the highest poverty rates in the world. We cannot allow ourselves as active researchers and activist researchers to only frame it as a humanitarian crisis, only frame the solutions as technological. We have to think of Gaza needs a political solution in order for us as practitioners to think about a sustainable future, not only for the Gaza Strip, separate from all of this North Palestine, not only also to always confine ourselves to West Bank and Gaza, but really to think much more about a water justice um, that extends beyond the geography. I think that's very important. Again, to look at what has caused what we see today and how can we think of a future where water is shared equitably and where we can actually look at additional water sources as a source of relief for, yes, a very big community, a growing population, and all of these other prospects. So our conversation really should be about climate justice, which is both an ethical and a political issue rather than purely an environmental or physical in nature. Yes, definitely. I think it's a cry not only in Palestine. There has been so many mobilizations uh, from grassroots organizations, from civil rights movements from all over the world, whether in the global north or the global south or whatever we want to call them. But there were cries for like kind of framing climate change issues as an issue of climate justice and environmental justice. Because what we see today is all of like the alternatives and what is proposed by nation states is taking a very neoliberal approach. So kind of looking at how companies can make more money by being more sustainable in order to combat climate change. But what we really need to focus on is issues of justice. I think it lies at the heart of it. Because in order to build 
viable and free societies, societies that can really thrive on equality, human rights, and all of the other important premises, we need to talk about justice, definitely. That's what's missing in this discourse about climate change. It's very neoliberal. It's very much technical, as well as you've mentioned. And in order to change that, we need to hear and give rise to the voices that come from from the grassroots and also work together. I think there's a lot of points of shared struggle between Palestine and a lot of other communities from all over the world, uh, indigenous communities, communities of color, people under military occupation, people under settler colonial settings, where that connection between people and the natural resource has been totally destroyed. And how can we actually work together on strengthening that narrative? Because it is a narrative of justice. Yeah, really, at the end of the day, it's about people having control over their own natural resources, natural resources as a common good, not as private property and commodity. Kind of, yeah, restoring the very much destroyed other elements of natural resources. They're not only resources that we harness for the development of society. They also Mm. have cultural, religious, emotive values that are very highly regarded and destroyed in all of our communities. And I think, yeah, we learn a lot from indigenous communities in the U.S., in Canada, in Australia, all of the indigenous communities who actually are trying to restore that balance with the natural world and bringing back the emotive, bringing back the spiritual connection to the land and the culture, because I think it will serve us as civil society, as activists, as people who are really care about these issues. It will give us some sort of light something to aspire to, to actually think of water differently. Mona Dejani is a policy member of Al-Shabake, the Palestinian Policy Network, and a Palestinian environmental researcher and activist based in Jerusalem. She is currently a PhD student at the London School of Economics at the Department of Geography and Environment. Her research interests are environmental politics, community-led resource management, and social impacts of climate change. For Jadalia, I am Malihe Razazan. For more information, please visit us at statushour.com.